out of the blue, there's this sound of a big circuit breaker and the lights go out. Greetings and welcome to the Traveler's Art Podcast. Thanks a lot for being with us. Today we have two great stories that really exemplify the philosophical position that the journey begins before departure. Now, early on in my photo career, I learned the phrase, success favors the prepared. And truly, that is the same with regards to travel. Now, that doesn't mean that we plan out every single nuance that kind of destroys the discovery and magic of travel. But more importantly, that we're planning our logistics and we're planning out how we're going to get there and where we're going to stay, maybe even budgetary constraints. But we also have to look into why we're going to travel. What's really behind that? So I think these two stories will bring us to a better understanding of the idea that the journey begins before departure. And I think they're going to be very inspiring. This is actually exciting for me because some of these stories I've never even told before. So it's exciting to revisit them and share them with you uh, wherever you may be. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to like them. Our first story, a special gift. So I'm walking down the streets of the capital city of Ukraine called Kiev. It's cold, it's windy. I have a backpack with a folder in it and inside that folder is my paperwork because I'm on my way to the Russian consulate to get my Russian visa. I had been in the Ukraine for about a month and a half. I traveled all over. I went to actually a very sad city called Donetsk, which fast forward a number of years later, was part of the Ukrainian civil war. In any case, I'm on my way and I finally get to uh, the Russian consulate and I walk in. And if you can imagine a Soviet era, Russian bureaucratic office setting, man, it was typecast. It was exactly, it was very sterile. It was meticulously clean. There was a lot of space and there weren't many people in there. And there was an entering kind of like a kiosk where you would tell them what you're there for. I went up and I greeted this woman in, in classic Russian secretary worker. She was gorgeous. She could have been a Milan runway model. She was stunning. And I said what I was there for. And she just basically handed me this really worn out, torn up, index card that was blue with a number on it done in like Sharpie marker. And she points over to this area and it's basically kind of like the, uh, like a bank line. So it's forming like an S or a Z and I wait in line for my, my, uh, my turn and I'm, I'm waiting a long time. And I look at my watch and I check the time on my watch with the Soviet clock and it literally has a hammer and sickle in the, the face of a clock that's on the wall. People are absolutely silent. Nobody's on their phone, no phones are allowed. There's a guard. And then there's another set of like, almost like card tables, but they're like really dense wood. They can be moved clearly, but they're dense wood. And I go ahead and, and I'm kind of just standing around and wondering what, what is going on here? I'm just taking note of everything I'm seeing. Like the chairs are in perfect alignment and they're wooden, looks like oak, desk chairs, perfectly lined up. And then people are individually coming out of a hallway to my left as other people get up from their particular chair and walk into that hallway. I have no idea what is going on. I'm completely oblivious on what's happening here. I finally look at my my watch and I've been standing in that line for like half an hour. And I'm like, wow, this is this is taking a while. And finally, somebody looks at me and 
is saying something in Russian and I just pulled up my baby blue dilapidated index card with my number on it. And they wave me over to this room. And in that room, there's this kind of older Russian woman and she says, what do you need? And I said, I need to get a Russian visa. She hands me this paperwork and just says, here you go. And then just, I have to walk out of the room. The guard then points me to sit back down in the chair. So I'm not in line anymore. I'm sitting in the chairs. And I wonder like, what, what is actually happening here? I'm, I mean, I'm thinking, I kind of missed the California Department of Motor Vehicles trying to get a driver's license or renew a registration. I mean, I thought that was bad. So I'm sitting there and I just keep looking at my paperwork and, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm good. And then out of the blue, there's this sound of a big circuit breaker and the lights go out. And the guard walks over in a very loud voice, says something in Russian. Everybody stands up that is sitting and begins to walk out. The office workers pack their folders, all walk over to some corner of this major room that we're in, kind of like a grand hall. They go in through some door and they leave. I walk out, I'm one of the last people to walk out. They lock the door and close the gate and that's it, they're done for the day. And I'm looking at my watch going, are they, what is this like lunch break? And I literally looked at a, uh, a very, uh, what looked like kind of a, a professor like uh, person. And I said, what happened? And they said, tomorrow. And they walked away. That was it. So <laughs> needless to say, wasn't expecting that. I'm thinking, okay, I got to come back tomorrow. All right. I'm not going to get crazy about it. So I walked back to the subway station. From the subway station, I got on the train, and then I got on another train, and then I walked again back to my small, cold, little apartment that I was staying in. So I come back the next day, and I repeat the process. I walk out, I walk down to the subway station, go down, do two trains, get off, walk back over, get back to the consulate, and repeat the process exactly. I walk up, I stand in line, I then queue on the line. I then speak to someone. They hand me the same form that I now have two copies of. I sit down and now I'm waiting. Finally, the guard points to me and then points, he points to me and then points to the, you know, go down the hall. And so I go, okay, I go down the hall and I'm not sure what to do. There's a restroom to the right. There's a water fountain that no one has drank out of probably since the 1970s. And to the left is a room and I kind of poke my head in and it's kind of hard to describe. It would be like if you ever went to like a records office where it's like a either a large uh, single walled kind of like a partition between the office workers and where you do business with the office workers and yourself. It was the same thing only to the right was just lines of shelves of documents and books. And you could look in and you could see one other worker, but everybody else was hidden behind finally cabinets or walls or, or bookshelves. And I'm standing there and I'm standing there. And then finally a woman comes over and she has this gorgeous crystal mug, tea mug or teacup. And she's drinking tea with a little slice of lemon in it. And I say to her, what I want to do. I'm in the Ukraine. I'd like to get a visa for Russia. I have all the appropriate paperwork. And she looks at me and says, no, not possible. Like ice cold. I'm looking at her and I'm like, well, look at the paperwork here. Like I, I have everything in order. And I had done my due diligence, everything. And I say, uh, what, what's the problem? And she tries to explain it and I don't understand at all. And she said, you can't get a visa unless you're in your mother country, which had me, yeah, I was on my heels at that point, as they say, I, I didn't know what to do. I'm like, well, I can't go back to the States. My flight to get home is out of Vladivostok, Russia, which is on the Eastern edge of Russia, close to South Korea, because I would brought myself to South Korea, South Korea, Los Angeles. So, I was, I don't know what to do. Uh, she's like, maybe you can send your passport to the United States and process it there. And she said, good luck and walked away. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. 
a little bit of a loss there, kind of wonder what I'm going to do now. So I walk out and I'm standing there and I'm not sure what to do. I'm looking at my paperwork and, and I'm looking through everything and I'm trying to figure out a way. And right about that time, I'm really, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. And a guy walks by and he was wearing a, you know, kind of like a suit, but without a tie. And he's got a briefcase and he walks up to me and speaks perfect English. And he says, Hey, you trying to get a visa to the country? And I said, yeah, but you don't have one, but you're in the Ukraine. I said, yeah. And he said, okay, so you need to get a bottle of cognac and the visa officer will just charge you extra money. He said, you get the same day service for $300. And then he has other things too, if you need to, but just bring a bottle of cognac, pay him the fee, you'll get the visa when you want it. I thought, really? He goes, yeah. Yeah, just tell him it's a special birthday gift. And so, okay, I'm trying to put all of this together so I don't sound like an idiot when I go up and talk to someone at that counter that I just left from. And I said, well, I just came out of there. He goes, just walk back in there. It's okay. And I thought, wow. I mean, this could like, would this throw me in jail? Like I'm thinking of the worst case scenarios. You know, I've gotten enough trouble in my life trying to work around the system. And I said, uh, so, uh, okay. So I give it a go. I turn right back around, walk into the office and I just go, excuse me. And I'm like really nice. And she goes, what? And I said, there has to be a way. Maybe a special birthday gift would help. And she stops, her arms drop. She looks at me, she tilts her head. She goes, wait here. It was like a deep sigh as if a burden was placed upon her. So she's gone for probably a minute. And then <laughs> this visa officer comes around from the bookcase. He has a, an older pair of dress shoes on that haven't been polished. He's wearing a clip-on tie for sure. And I think he might have a little bit of food stain on his shirt, but the pattern of the shirt probably hides it. And I said, so I need to get into Russia and I'm here in the Ukraine. I didn't have time to get a visa while I was in my mother country. I'm sure we could work something out. And he goes, uh-huh. And I said, maybe a special gift? He looks at me, he looks down, grabs a pencil from his right. And on the left-hand side, there's a slip of loose papers, small, like the size of post-it notes. And he basically writes a one with an equal sign and 300. And then he writes a seven, an equal sign, and then 160. And then 14, an equal sign, and 100. And I'm, I'm looking at these just so perplexed. I have no idea what I'm looking at. And he looks at me, and he looks at the paper. I look at the paper, I look at him. He then points the pencil on the one equals 300. And he looks at me like with his, you know, when you open your eyes up, like, uh-huh, what do you think? Without saying anything, you know, that nonverbal communication. And I said, I'm not sure. And just as I said, I'm not sure, I said, oh, I'm in no rush. Seven days is fine. He goes, seven days. Come back Friday. Today was Wednesday. Come back Friday. And I basically am going to come back and, and give him the money and, and, uh, everything. So I give him my passport. Did I give him my passport? Actually, no. So he walks away. He actually, but he circles the seven equals 160. And he says something in Russian and that the woman that works the front desk there, she comes over. He hands her that slip of paper. She comes over and says, documents, please. I hand her all the documents, including the photo, which it, that photo was a, a real hassle to get because I could not find a place to do a passport photo when I was in Kiev until I finally spoke to someone and they actually guided me for the day, which was very generous of them. I'll never forget that person. I hand her the documents. She said, come back on Friday and bring a gift. And she walks away. And I just pick up my briefcase and walk out 
everybody is just as when I left the big like hall where there's people standing in line and then there's people sitting in the chairs. There's the guard and then the office workers. And I walk out totally dumbfounded because I just gave that passport to somebody I don't know, which essentially now I'm bribing a Russian visa official. <laughs> and I think to myself, well, I better find an ATM because in two days I got to walk over there and hand that guy $160 cash plus the visa fee. So that was another hundred bucks. So it's $260 to get my visa to get into Russia, which was required because of how I routed myself out of Eastern Europe via the airplane tickets. I'm thinking to myself, oh God, where's the ATM? I'm exhausted. It's emotionally draining. So I go ahead and I decide that I'm going to just go back to the apartment, have a late lunch and relax. So on the way back to the apartment, I get off the last train and nearby is uh, basically kind of a cheese, salami and alcohol store. So I grab some cheese, I grab some salami, a couple loaves of bread, and I look around for a bottle of cognac because I'm reminded by the man that I met at the visa center, hey, make sure you bring a bottle of cognac and a special gift. I thought, okay. So, walking around and I'm thinking, I don't know anything about cognac outside of if it's good, it tastes good. And if it's bad, it tastes like sugary rubbing alcohol. I, I don't know. So I'm thinking, hmm. And this gorgeous Ukrainian woman comes up to me and says, how can I help you? Impeccable English. And I said, I'm looking for a bottle of cognac that's middle of the road. And she said, do you want French cognac or do you want Moldovan cognac? And I said, oh, Oh, I want Moldovan cognac. Because prior to going to the Ukraine for a month, I spent two and a half weeks in Moldova. And then I went to Romania and then I went to the Ukraine. That's a whole other story. But I knew Moldovan cognac was aces and it was a tenth of the price. And since I'm already $260 in the hole, <laughs> I thought, yeah. But it's also really good cognac technically not cognac because it's not French, but it's the same process with some pretty phenomenal results. She hands me a bottle. It's eight bucks. I said, give me the larger one and I'll take a smaller one for me. So I get a larger bottle of cognac. It's like a full liter of, of the Moldovan cognac. And then I had a small, like, like a half pint or something for myself. I take it back to the apartment and I proceed to drink the entire half pint of cognac by myself as I wallow in, in absolute fear that my, I will go into the consulate and the visa office and I'll be arrested for something. And I said, so I'm at least gonna have some good booze before that. The next morning I wake up, I do the whole process again. I get into the consulate's office. I walk up to the visa reception area I told them what I wanted to do. They gave me another index card with a number on it. I stood in line. I then sat down. They then called my card, color or number, I can't remember. I walked into the visa office down the hallway, past the guard, and I brought the bottle of cognac with me, but she said, just your payment, please. And I handed her the envelope and she just looked at it really quickly opened it and then she said thank you come back next friday it was going to be seven days which ended up you know essentially being nine so i uh yeah i didn't and i just walked out it's seven days later i actually spent seven days down in a southern city called odessa that was interesting i can see why odessa has such great history it's beautiful there so I got back into the consulate's office. I then walked into the visa office. The woman greeted me. She said something in Russian. And, and here comes, looks like the senior visa uh, official. And he has a little brown envelope. He puts it on the counter. And in my bag, I pull out his special gift. It was wrapped. I set it down and I looked at him. And in Russian, I said, Hereshon. And he looked at me, he smiled. And he said, enjoy your trip with, with like a British Russian mixed accent. 
I was just like, wow. So I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I just bribed a Russian official. How, how does that work? And I got my visa in my, in my passport and I proceeded to walk on out. And I think to myself, you know, this is a long time ago. You know, it's not like it was two years ago by any stretch. Uh, but it, it just blew me away. I had never, I had been involved in bribes. I had been involved in unusual border crossings, but never something so orchestrated, never something that took so many steps and was so logistical. It's almost as if the bribe black market was as complex as the bureaucratic legitimate market, which I thought was very interesting. And I also know that most people in, in countries that work in the government sector are paid very little. They're, they're basically paid a penance uh, and they have certain benefits to working for in the government sector of any country for that matter. So I'm like, you know, this is probably just a side cash for him and the rest of the office in the visa section. And the reality is there's probably not a big deal to get a visa issued there as there is having it just mailed and taking a while. Because there was technically no difference in what I submitted in terms of paperwork than if I had done it from the United States. Zero. It was strictly a bureaucratic step. Now, I share that story because <laughs> I had no idea that that rule exists. I didn't even know that that could be a possibility. I didn't even think a country would even care as long as they got their money and you filled out all the paperwork properly, who cares where it comes from? In fact, I went on to research further. In actuality, at that time, there was nothing anywhere that I could find that said that you must be in your mother country to get a visa to get into the country. None. So in some ways, I felt kind of exonerated, like I didn't do anything wrong. But then I'm also realizing that some things just happen and you have to be prepared to adapt to those. Then, just recently, I did do some more research and there was a small piece of text at the bottom of my visa application that did say, you must be in your mother country. So, I guess the lesson there for me was, when it comes to certain aspects of travel, there's no wing in it. You really have to pay attention. Now, granted, this is a great story that I shared because I had that happen. But if I had met that guy that told me how to do that process, who knows what kind of downward spiral I would have taken. second story after a musical break and a tribute to the visa agent that got me into Russia.
right, everyone, let's leave Kiev. We're going to take uh, a little journey to the other side of the globe, to Yosemite Valley, a phenomenal place. I was a climber a long time ago, and I used to call Yosemite the church because up on the big stone, a lot of prayer happens. This story is called 25 Years. I noticed that the hanging stove that was right next to me was starting to make that signature sound that the water in the pot was about to boil. So I went ahead and pulled out my hot cocoa and instant coffee and poured the contents into a plastic mug and I would make my cafe mocha for my big wall breakfast, which would also include a bagel with cream cheese, an energy bar, uh, some oatmeal, and a little bit of fruit cup. Living on a big wall is like nothing else in the world. Suspended against this vertical monolith of rock with nothing around me. I could literally drop a piece of climbing gear and it would not touch the wall. It would go all the way down to the ground. I'd been up here for four days and this was my last day and I never really had gotten into wall groove or living on a wall. I was still waking up with anxiety and deep worry. Being up here alone for as long as I had, I was starting to question my intentions and start to really lose my confidence in some ways. I really was struggling with angst. I, I kind of wanted to get off the wall and get to the summit and be able to go down and drink some cold beer and, and revel in my accomplishments. So I went ahead to finish my breakfast. I stowed my gear away, broke down my portalage, which is kind of like a, like a folding cot, but without legs, and it's suspended uh, from the corners. So you kind of hang on the side of the wall. So I put all the uh, stuff away, put the uh, climbing gear on my shoulders, and checked that my ropes would feed without getting tangled, and proceeded to begin the last day of climbing. It was a windy day that day, and near the summit at uh, around noon, it can start to really get windy from the thermal activity of Yosemite Valley being uh, very warm and heating up, and then the upper valley being still cold, so cold air kind of dumps down into the valley, and then this warm current rushes up the face. And it can be uh, somewhat spiritual, but for me at this time, I was just eager to get off. And so at the very end, of uh, the day I finally did summit and I sat down and it was more like a relief and it was disappointing in some ways because the truth was I really wanted to solo the route to prove that I could do it by myself and and I was strong and and all of the things that that one does to try and prove themselves so I, I said, I'm going to solo this climb and do it in five days and I'm going to get into myself. But I never really did. I just had this feeling of angst just the entire time. But that wasn't what I was thinking at the time. Instead, I was thinking about, all right, so should I go down now? Uh, which is basically about a two and a half, three hour hike followed by three full length repels and another two hour hike down. I opted to just sleep on the summit, wake up in the morning, and um, have a remaining snack, the last bit of food and water that I had, and then just go down with fresh legs and a good night's sleep. And the hike down was uneventful, the rappels were no big deal, but uh, carrying all that load was quite a lot of work. And by the time I got down to my, my VW van, I was uh, pretty tired. But I... Uh, I had the wherewithal and strength to go ahead and put the kid in the in the van, go down to the Merced, do a quick rinse, and then drive my van to the grocery store in Yosemite Valley and grab some Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, my preferred beer of choice at the time. After getting the, the cold beer, I drove the van back over to Camp 4, which at that time was kind of the epicenter for big wall climbers to, to hang out and share information, tell stories, and kind of bond. Uh, it was a small group of people at that time. It wasn't, you know, a very popular type of climbing. 
technical sport climbing was very popular at that time. So big wall climbing didn't really have much participation. So I met a few people, told them what I did. I was all smiles and I got a few accolades. And uh, someone had said, hey, listen, uh, we're going to get together for a fire, um, you know, a little bit later. I thought, oh, this is great. So I went ahead and it just relaxed for the rest of the day, unpacked my stuff, reorganized it, put it away, checked for any kind of damage, kind of standard maintenance stuff. And I went ahead and, and I, I was just ready to go. I'm like, I can't wait to go to this fire and talk to everybody. And so uh, in the dark, I kind of walk over to the campsite where the fire's taking place. There's about, I'd say there's about a dozen people there and everybody's talking and sharing. And, and I, I had a couple of beers with me. And as I was drinking beer and talking with some other climbers, climbers were talking about some of the free climbing they had done. Other climbers were talking about the walls are going to get done. And I just chimed in and said, yeah, I just got off the Zodiac. I sold it, man. And somebody said, oh, wow, that's, that's really cool. And they just went on talking about something else. And I, again, I approached them again, you know, and said, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty hard. I, I was really surprised. There was a lot of um, very challenging sections and uh, the top out had uh, a few problems logistically for getting the bag over the corner. And they went, oh, wow. And they moved on to some other topic. I was so deflated. I was devastated, really. Here I had done this huge thing. I hung around for maybe five more minutes at the campfire. And I walked away in the dark, watching the glow of the fire fade as I distanced myself from the group. I went back to my van, crawled in the sleeping bag, and I went to sleep. I woke up the next morning, not sure what to do. I was really confused. I felt such deep depression. I was absolutely lost. So I decided to drive up to the upper uh, Yosemite Valley Park area called Tuolumne Meadows. And I thought I'll just relax there for a day or two and, and figure out what I'm going to do next. And uh, I just drove away, right up into the valley, didn't say goodbye to any of my friends, and I just left. And so I, I just really struggled. I was like, what is going on for me? I am just hurt. I was emotionally hurting. I had done this amazing thing. Why isn't anybody you know, patting me on the back and flowering me and smothering me with praise and validation? Instead, they were recognizing that I had spoken. It was a hard moment, no doubt about it. The drive actually is quite nice, and I I parked at uh, one of the more remote campground areas, and I proceeded to literally take everything out of my van, clean it, and reorganize everything. It's one of the coping mechanisms I had when I deal with emotional stress, is I just get everything organized in my life. And uh, let's just say when I was done, I was organized all right, because I still was struggling emotionally. Like, what is go? I'm just so confused. Once I was done putting all my personal effects away in my van and, and preparing dinner, I started to think about my feelings, started to think about what I was doing and where I was going and what my intention was. And I really, really struggled. At that time when I sold all cap, I really was going through tremendous emotional confusion and turmoil in general. I was in a very unhealthy relationship with a woman. I was suffering from a minor identity crisis and feeling generally displaced in my own culture. It was a it was a hard time. And I'd read about retreats and silence for 3 to 14 days that you could go on, and I didn't really have the money and I really didn't know too much about that at that time. So that's why I opted for a solo big wall for about 5 days. And I thought, oh, I want to, you know, I want to get into myself. Secretly, I was lying to myself and I discovered that. What I really wanted to do was impress other people. I was creating a myth that the motivation was to prove myself 
And uh, quite to the contrary, I was actually seeking attention. I was seeking to have value, to be accepted, uh, to be bestowed accolades upon me. And I was shortchanged because I had set myself up. The reality was its only value was the value I made for myself. After dinner, I was sipping some rum and I really took a step back and I said, I, I don't know if I want to climb anymore. And I started unpacking going, wait a minute, I think I'm climbing to try and prove to other people I can. I wasn't climbing for the sake of the experience or the growth or to discover more about myself or to conquer fear or to work against fear or work with my fear. No, no, I was performing. I sat in the dark alone in Upper Yosemite Valley, devastated with my own insight. I felt like a fraud. I felt like a charlatan and I had fooled myself. The truth was, Nobody really cared. And quite frankly, they weren't supposed to. It's not their climb. Why should they care about my climb? Why should they care about what I do? So I took kind of an emotional step back and, and realized, okay, if I'm gonna be climbing, it needs to be for the right reasons, or I'm just not willing to do it. Because it's inherently a selfish act. Nobody really benefits from it except for the individual climber. That's the truth. I really didn't have an interest in ever being like, quote, a professional climber or a sponsored climber. That just, I mean, I thought about, oh, that'd be so great. And I just thought, you know, what makes climbing good and makes climbing great is you're free. That's why I kept doing it. So just to give some context, climbing a big wall in this type of style, where you spend multiple days living on the side of a, of a wall, is a very involved process of preparation, both in your equipment, but also your mindset. You have to manage these ropes. You have to haul all of your food and water. You eat canned food that's reheated in a hanging stove. All the other essential gear, like a sleeping bag, like a toothbrush, all these small little items all have to be put into a large bag that's kind of like the size of a 55 gallon drum. And it's hauled up the face after every section that you climb, which is about 140 to 150 feet. You even poop in a bag and then you put it into a PVC tube every morning. It's a daunting task and quite frankly, it's hard work. And there's no glamor in being a big wall climber. People have asked me, why, why would you do that? That just seems crazy. And, and my response is, in essence to me, it is the simplification of life to the absolute essentials with a sole purpose and to share that purpose with someone you trust. There are no distractions up there. And it's just you, the gear, the goal, and your partner. You can't lie up there. You can't distract yourself up there. It's all consuming. And yet it's lean, clean, and fat-free living. That's why I love big wall climbing. The next morning, I drove down to Yosemite Valley from the high country where I'd stayed the night before and decided to connect with a few friends I'd walked out on last night and go to the mountain shop to get a few pieces of replacement gear that had been damaged or lost. After I connected with a few people, ran a few errands, got some food and, and uh, beverages, I decided to spend the afternoon in El Cap Meadow, which is a beautiful place, especially if you walk deep into the meadow and get pretty close to the river. And I just looked up there and uh, at the climbing store where I'd gotten some extra gear and replacement uh, gear, I picked up an issue of Climbing Magazine. There was an article about a very well-known climber back in the uh, early days of Yosemite's climbing history. His name was Charlie Porter. And Charlie Porter actually had done the first ascent of the route I had just soloed. So I was fascinated. I really didn't know much about this character. Long story short, he did a climb in northern Canada on a, in a place called Baffin Island, and it damn near killed him. I mean, the story is horrible. Trench foot, running from polar bears, hiding in rocks, presumed dead. It's quite harrowing. 
and he never told anybody. And I really thought about that for a long time. And I thought, wow, why didn't he tell anybody? And then it clicked. He didn't tell anybody because it didn't matter. The second part of our story after a short musical break. gear on a tarp on the ground, which is pretty standard uh, pre-big wall preparation behavior. A lot of people ask me what I was doing, what route I was planning on going up. Normally, I would have gone into a diatribe about what I'm bringing and the gear, basically smother a simple question with a very, very large answer. But this time, it was different. I said, I'm not really sure. I'm just making sure that my gear is in good work and order. It, it actually was interesting because I had a number of people ask me if I would like to join them on a route they were thinking about doing or if they could join me on a route that I had decided on, both of which I respectfully passed on because I had my sights on a new project, something even longer and more sustained than the previous while I had just got done doing. It was going to command a lot of concentration, and it was going to be about eight days. The wind was blowing pretty hard, and my ropes had gotten entangled. I was rappelling down at the same time that I was hauling my bag, a technique called space hauling. Essentially, the bag is on one end of the rope, I'm on the other, and I basically counterweight the bag. This speeds up the process of getting your supplies, your whole like camping life up to the uh, upper section without doing too much work. But I was in a precarious situation. Essentially, my rappel line had gotten entangled with the haul bag below me. In essence, I was somewhat stuck and I started to get kind of stressed. So I went ahead and I had to wrap the rappel line around my thigh so that I could prevent myself from 
following any further. I started trying to think things through, like what should I do? Well, I could maybe rappel down the lead line. Oh, it would just, it started to become a nightmare. And I started to get actually very scared. Things were going beautifully. I was day four into this. I was about halfway. I wasn't going too fast and I wasn't going too slow. I was just right on track. And I realized, hey, this is this is serious. This is getting very bad very quickly. If I, I could make a mistake and basically plummet to my death if I'm not careful. So instead, I, I took a deep breath. I remembered, hey, the slow path is the fast path. Just, there's no rush right now. Essentially, where I was taking the bag up to was gonna be where I was going to camp out for the night anyway. I started looking at things a little bit more objectively. I was a little less emotional about it. I noticed that in actuality, if I would be willing to slow down just a little bit, I could fling the longer end of the rope around the equipment bag, and then I could get low enough to undo all the tangling. And so I did just that. I repelled it a little lower. That ended up giving me more control of this kind of free end and I could continue to rappel down. I got to the bags and it was a absolute rat's nest. I had water bottles tied off and they got tangled in the line and the portal edge was tangled. And then I had a the poop tube, which is this piece of PVC tube that you put your defecation into, was like canted and was grinding against the wall and I could just faintly smell fecal matter, which really was off-putting. I was actually tempted to just pull out my small little Swiss army knife out of my pocket and cut it away. But I decided, no, no. And I really, uh, I, I thought I was under control, but it suddenly dawned on me that when the sun went around the corner of El Cap and I was in the shade, I had a meltdown. I got so scared, I started to shake. I'm four days up, and I got four more days to go. I don't know if I've got it in me. I realized that I was still trying to prove something to other people. I was driven for the wrong purpose again. And so I just slumped down, and I started having these like convulsive tears come up because I didn't want to be here anymore. I wanted down. I wanted to click my heels and be Dorothy and go home. But I looked at, at that bag and I looked at that rope and I looked at all that space below me and I just felt like I was three years old and I was in a terrible, scary place. And I thought, take a deep breath, man. Take a deep breath. This is a working break. This is not an emergency. It only becomes an emergency when it is one, and it's not one right now. You've got to the bag. Just take your time and undo everything. And so I took a time to kind of figure out where the rope was going, why was it tangled, why was everything the way it was, and I, I diagnosed that. I got it free, I let it go. The bag kind of swung away from me out into space. And I was hugely relieved and I was shaking. I was shaking so intense that I was actually afraid to rappel back down to the, to the start of the section I had just finished. It's called the belay. I, I was petrified. And so I took another deep breath, closed my eyes and said, well, one thing's for sure. You're going to die if you stay here. So rappel down. So that way, if you do die, you're at the belay, so people will have an easier time taking your body down. As I laughed to myself, I repelled down and I started to talk to myself one step at a time. Unclip this, clip this in your harness, double check. Okay, that's unclipped, you're still tied in. Okay, tie into the lead line, great. Now I'll put your ascenders on the lead line, great. Now you're backed up, you're on the lead line. Take the slack out of the lead line, let the rappel line go. Okay, that's good to go, great. I was so careful and I noticed that I was going so smooth. It was almost as if I was in a complete Zen moment of doing without doing. 
I, as I tell this story to you right now, I'm actually getting like a sympathetic high. It's an incredible experience to relive this. I got up to the belay, put all the kit away, and I proceeded to set up my camp for the night. Again, I was moving like water would move around smooth rocks down a large stream. It was an amazing experience that I shall not forget. And the wind was still blowing. It had these warm periods and cool periods. It just, the wall felt alive. I felt alive. I set up my portal edge, put out the sleeping mat and my sleeping bag, hung up my hanging stove, got my food bag out, and proceeded to sit down, take my shoes off, rub my feet, drink some great rum, and watch the sunset. And the colors were, were beautiful indigo and dark blue with gorgeous orange cloud highlights. I'll never forget those colors, and I'll never forget the overall feeling of relief to be in my ledge and to be relaxing. And I sat there in absolute calm silence. I loaded up my bags in my van. It had taken me 10 days to climb this route. And as I pulled into Camp 4 to tell everybody I was uh, leaving the valley for a while, people had asked where I was. Somebody had said, hey, I think I saw you on El Cap. I said, ah, maybe I was confusing you with someone else. Anyway, I'll miss you guys. I got my van and I popped a cassette tape into my tape player. That's how long ago it was. And I played one of my favorite songs at the time and didn't tell anybody that I had soloed the Pacific Ocean Wall for 25 years. Well, I hope you enjoyed those two stories. That wraps it up for this episode of the Traveler's Art Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I'd like to wrap up these last two stories that uh, you just listened to and say that it's really important that we consider what our intention is. Because if we put our attention on our intention, that directs our energy. That way we don't set ourselves up for failure and we set ourselves up for success. Too often, we get enamored by the idea of travel and we don't really think it through. That being said, if you find this podcast interesting and is providing you value, please hit the subscribe button. That will help me grow the podcast and continue to develop content for everyone. And it also help nurture and grow the movement of the philosophical aspect of travel. If you'd like to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can go to thetravelersart.com. There's a contact button there. You can just send me a quick message. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm going to end this episode with the song that was actually on that cassette tape that I played as I drove out of Yosemite Valley. Until next time, I'll talk to you soon.
Thank you.